tonight's thought. Will movie theaters survive? Will cinema in theaters survive in this modern world we live in? constant question we're asking ourselves right why go to the movie theater when i can just uh stay home and uh stream or play video games there's just so much to do here at home why am i gonna put on like uh my shoes and underwear and get in the car and uh drive through traffic to go pay 16 bucks for a movie ticket Yeah, it just seems like movie theaters have been struggling. They have been for quite a while. Uh, you know, just this process of getting and going and sitting down and watching a, a, a movie in a dark theater with a bunch of other people. There's um, problems with that. Um, just people don't seem to be going. They don't want the aggravation. Oh, and also there's this uh, pandemic right now that's uh, closed them all for pretty much most of the year so far and here we are we find ourselves at the beginning of summer and movie theaters and gyms are like the two play a lot of other places are opening right now but movie theaters and gyms where you go and work out are the are just the two businesses that cannot exist when uh, this COVID-19 this coronavirus thing is still a problem so I'm not wor- I'm not thinking about the gyms, although I do have a gym membership that I probably need to cancel because I'm paying to not do anything. Uh, but, you know, the movie theaters are just... Um, that's a big deal for them to be closed down for three months, and uh, it's really hit the studios very hard. Most of them are now releasing their big-budget uh, spring movies on um, on streaming services. So you can just go on there and uh, pay 20 bucks to watch a movie with all of your friends that you would have all had to pay about 16 bucks a piece to go see. And so when this COVID-19 crisis is over, movie theaters are what, just going to stop that? But it's been such a big success. I think they're just going to keep releasing movies uh, on demand. So you don't have to leave your house and put on your shoes and your underwear and uh, not in that order and go to a crowded theater, right? And it's a very tough question to ask. Do do we want movie theaters to go away? Are we done with them? Uh, Certainly there are a lot of aggravations. You go to a theater now and your shoes stick to the floor because of all the butter and the grime that people just leave down there and they don't pick up. And they expect 16-year-old teenagers to adequately uh, clean those floors between every screening. Uh, There's people texting. There's people talking. You never can say anything to them because then it becomes a shouting match. That's happened to me before, at least. There's people throwing up next to you. That happened to my friend Jason. And occasionally, on occasion, somebody might come into the theater and open fire. That that hasn't happened to me, but it has happened before. Uh, 
So, I mean, do we want theaters to go away? I think this is like an important question that we need to ask ourselves right now. If we want to do this, um, just convert to all streaming. And I was talking with a friend of mine uh, this weekend who came into town from Atlanta. And he was talking about uh, how uh, this se- this summer, you know, the big blockbuster movie, uh, what was expected to be a big blockbuster movie, is this flick called uh, Tenet, which is this uh, spy thriller directed by uh, Christopher Nolan. He's the guy who did the Batman movies and Inception. And he was saying that more or less the future of movies, uh, movie theaters, lies on Tenet's hands. If that movie opens in the theater next month and it doesn't do any business at all, uh, movie theaters are done. (laughs) Because uh, this is the summer season. This is when uh, the bills are supposed to be paid for the entire year. And uh, so we may be about to witness a major uh, collapse of just an American institution going back 100 years. Can movie theaters survive? in this modern world we live in. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this is the Midnight Citizen Show. Welcome in. I'm your host, Mike Booty. It's great to be here again for uh, the second show that I've done uh, in the last week and a half, and that's been the first two shows I've done in, in three years. So, uh, and it just seems a natural thing to do right now as I'm sitting home trying to still go out as little as possible. You know, the world is slowly opening up. Uh, we can go out again and a lot of businesses are adapting that. Uh, I ate in a restaurant the other day for the first time in about four months. I felt gross the whole time I did it, but I, but I, it was still happening. There were other people around me, but for the most part, the numbers are still going up. There's no data to support that any of this is going away anytime soon. And so I'm just uh, sitting at home all day, watching movies, reading books, reading a lot of books and uh, might as well just do a podcast, jump on in there. It's great to be back. Yeah. And uh, those movies that I'm watching, you know, I'm supposed to be watching them in the theater, like uh, The Invisible Man, the movie that came out. And I think they released it for about 20 bucks. You could watch it for 20 bucks for a period of uh, 48 hours with as many people as you want. It's not like they're going to police how many people go into your living room. So. But this is a big question we have to ask ourselves. Do we want the movie theater to go away? And uh, I had one New Year's resolution this year, and this is probably going to make a lot of people who love movie theaters hate me or just love movies in general. I didn't want to go to the movies any this year. That was my resolution. That was my one and only (laughs) resolution for the New Year's is just to not go to the movies Uh, because I, I was just so tired of it. I was just so tired of uh, spending money on an overpriced ticket to go into the theater with bad digital proje- projection and, and really bad sound. 
and watch a movie that just is not half as good as your average episode of uh, Ozark. I've gotten so used to series television. I don't know about you, but uh, television, again, it's so good. It's been good for many, many years now. And we've been conditioned to uh, take our stories slow and steady on television. And when we go into a movie, everything's just really quick and over in like 90 minutes. And uh, that works for some movies, but a lot of uh, filmmakers don't really have uh, the discipline to make a good movie anymore, it seems like. Almost all of them are just migrating over to television. And uh, I almost feel that way with books, too. I think a lot of the great writers of 2020 are writing for television. They're not writing books. So... And that was my New Year's resolution. I have to ask myself, I mean, uh, am I am I okay with never going to the movies again? If, if, if this movie Tenet comes out and it indeed fails and nobody goes to see it, first off, will the studio put it on demand? And then if everybody watches it on demand, I think that'll be like the nail in the coffin. Everybody's going to realize, okay, we no longer need movie theaters. And I've been p- predicting this for a very long time. going to theaters. Uh, I think the decision that I made when I made my decision about my new year's resolution is I, um, I went to go see around Christmas time last year, that movie uncut gems with Adam Sandler, not a movie I really cared about. Uh, I, I went to go see it with a big group of people who were into it. I don't really like Adam Sandler, even, even in dramatic roles. He plays this uh, Jewish jeweler in the New York City Diamond District who gets involved with uh, gamblers and basketball and, and the mafia. It was an okay movie. It was an okay movie. But I'm sitting there in the theater next to these two people, these two older people uh, who are talking the whole way through, and I can't get up now because the theater does this thing where they assign you seats. <laughs> so you can't get up and move from your seat. Because and, and this happened to be like a crowded theater, so I couldn't even get around those rules. So these two people were sitting next to me talking through the whole thing, and, and there's a basketball scene in the movie near the end of the movie that's almost the entire third act of the flick. <laughs> the man is explaining to his wife how the game of basketball is played so that she'll better understand the plot. He's like, okay, the game of basketball is played. There's a tip-off. One, two players stand at the center of the court. Oh, what's a court? It's the thing that they play on. You know, that kind of thing. It was maddening as hell. And I have more experiences like that than I do just comfortable, enjoyable experiences at the movies. So I just said... Every time I come to the theater, I always think it's going to be different, but it never is. It's always the same. There's something that happens in that, in that theater that just uh, detracts from your enjoyment of the movie. So would I be comfortable if all that goes away? I don't know. Like, let's take it away for an entire year and see if I am. See if I'm totally fine uh, not going to the movies, not having that in my life anymore. And uh, it's June 6th. 2020 I haven't been to a movie in six months and 
You know, I've got that chip. I feel good. I, I, I really do not miss it um, at all. But the community, I do. I do miss. And when I think of every great movie-going experience I ever had, it was uh, because I was there with other people who were just as into the movie as I was. I think of uh, comedies I saw. I always think of going to see uh, this movie, Pineapple Express, which was not a great movie, but I was in a theater on opening night. It was a packed house of uh, teenagers, and nobody in the room was under the age of was over the age of thirty. So they were all into this uh, stoner comedy. And, uh, and it was a great experience. We sat in there and like, we, we laughed and, uh, just busted a gut and fell on the floor as, uh, this ridiculous plot was unfolding before our eyes for the first time. And that was a great experience. Uh, community going to see star Wars, the force awakens on uh, opening night with my entire bachelor party, because it was the, uh, week before our wedding, you know, some guys go to strip clubs for their bachelor parties. I went to go see star Wars with mine. And then afterwards we went to on tap and we had just a, a, a very, very long film discussion. You know, the one time I've been patted down by police was in a movie theater parking lot at 3 AM. My friend, uh, my, my two friends, Jason and Josh and I had uh, just gotten out of uh, the Hulk, you know, that movie, uh, the Hulk, that came out in 2003 that nobody liked. Uh, we, uh, we got out of a midnight screening of that, of that, of that movie at about a uh, two And we were just sitting in the parking lot afterwards, you know, talking about the movie, talking about things we liked, talk about, talking about mostly about the things that we didn't like. Just sitting there in the parking lot, talking about it. And the cops come along and it, it's weird to them that three guys are, in an abandoned parking lot at 3 a.m. And we, we understand, I understand that totally, you know, and for whatever, they could not understand why we were uh, talking about the movies. They, they thought we were dealing drugs to each other. So we got patted down and my friend Jason's car got searched, which I'm pretty sure is a civil rights violation. But anyway, that happened. We, uh, and I have on my desk here right in front of me, actually, I have on my desk right here in front of me uh, a movie ticket from 2008, There Will Be Blood, that I went and saw at the Lorna Road Dollar Theater Drive, uh, Dollar Theater, I almost said drive-in, but it was a dollar theater. Was, uh, we had already been to see this movie many times, but I went with a big group of my friends, community, and I met my wife at that screening. Of course, we didn't go out until a couple of years later. This was on March 29th, 2008. We didn't start going out until a couple of years later. And then a few years after we, we were dating and my wife is going through like a whole bunch of movie tickets from uh, that she had just collected over the years. And she found this movie ticket from March 29th of 2008. And then we said, oh, my gosh, wait a second. Our first date was on March 29th, 2008. 
Um, and so when I proposed to my wife, I took her to that dollar theater. I may be the only guy in the history of uh, proposals that's proposed to his wife in front of a dollar theater in a dingy part of town, but, uh, it meant something to us and I, she liked it. At least we, she told me she appreciated it. <laughs> so, you know, there's a community of movie theaters that, uh, you know, memories are made there. Everything else, if movie theaters went away tomorrow, I'd be totally fine with never having to go through the experience again, but I would miss the community. It would go away. And I, I'm sad about that. Not to mention that my uh, first job of all time was working in a movie theater. Uh, a dollar theater, actually, as a matter of fact. I worked at a dollar theater. I was uh, 16 years old. And at that time, the, the first lesson I ever learned about getting a job anywhere was what, what it was about the benefits. You take a job for the benefits, right? And in the, and the benefits are what matter to you. And when you're 16 years old, at least when I'm 16 years old, the things that matter to me, the benefits of getting a job at a movie theater were, was that you got to see all the free movies you wanted and you got to bring your friends. Not to mention that the uh, dollar theater there at the Colonnade Shopping Center here in Birmingham was just uh, my favorite place in the entire world. Because you could see, like, a movie came out in the first-run theater. You didn't have to pay eight bucks at that time to go see it. You could go and just, if you had eight bucks in your pocket, you could see that movie eight times. That was great. So I got a job when I was a sophomore in high school. I had only, I had just turned 16 about three months earlier. And I started my first job at the Colonnade Dollar Theater on uh, December 27th. 1998. I was pretty savaged at that job by, by my coworkers. I was not liked very much at all by my coworkers because I was, uh, I was 16, but I looked like, uh, a kid that Opie on the Andy Griffith show would beat up and bully. I, I was pretty, I was pretty wimpy <laughs> uh, very fresh faced as a guard in a casino in Las Vegas once said looked like I had been drinking milk all my life and I didn't really like the job all that much it was uh, not a very fun job you would go in and uh, y you know the first thing I ever did when I got there at my job is they gave me my uniform I, I had to put on a Horrible red vest and like a pin-on bow tie. My little goofy name tag. And, uh, of course, it all smelled like butter and it, it, it hadn't been washed. It was all sticky, too. First thing I did the, the, after my first night of work is I, I went home and washed all of it. You know, because it was just one of those jobs where the employees, the, the, or, or the team members... 
or a dime a dozen. That was the first time I ever le- learned that there's about a million euphemisms for low wage employee team member, you know, and just working there and just having to deal with the constant experiences, you know, you're there just thinking about, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to go see many, so many free movies, but I also got to do this job and, you know, constantly getting bitched out by customers you know these customers like you that was the first time I ever learned that just people can get angry at you for no reason at all just because they had a bad day there's no logic to it it's not worth figuring it out i remember this one time this woman comes up to me and says i need a cup of water and i'm like okay it's three dollars and 25 cents and she's like what it's like the mom in a christmas story what i said well uh, the water's nothing but we got to charge you for the cup and she's like well, I have a doctor's note that I have to take my pill now. So you're defying me. Uh, you're keeping me from my sanity. I'm like, okay, fine. So I had to go and talk to the manager, get her a cup of water, you know. And then that one time I'm I'm working by myself, just an innocent guy on a Thursday night when it's not busy at all. And this adult man, probably 50 years old, comes up to me and starts bitching me out because there's a screaming kid in the theater that's showing Jack Frost, which is this uh, kid's family movie with Michael Keaton about uh, this uh, guy who dies and comes back to life as like a snowman. So this 50-year-old man is in the theater watching the movie by himself on a Thursday night, and he's angry that there's a, there's a kid screaming in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was... That was fun. And then learning that uh, the kind of people that uh, those places hire on minimum wage are not necessarily the model citizens of society, you know. Some of them were cool. I remember, you know, there was a hunter who was about my age. He was a couple years older than me, and I, I think he kind of took it on himself to be like my mentor or something. Yeah, he took it on himself to be my mentor. You know, he would he would bring me in and uh, show me how to make the popcorn, show me uh, where all the the butter was, and teach me how to you know make jokes and just take it on the chin whenever somebody was like a jerk to me. You know, sit back there, and he would actually tutor me in math sometimes because we had the same math teacher. And then there was like a guy like Ringo. Ringo was uh, 68 years old, I'm pretty sure. Uh, nice guy, but liked to party a little bit too hard. Very often I had to come in to cover his shifts because he hadn't woken up that day. And I remember my manager, Miss Nelson, would call me up and say, you got to get down here. Ringo didn't show up. I think he's hungover. And at least on, on at least one occasion, I had to... Uh, I had to cover for Ringo because he uh, he got arrested and he had spent a night in the drunk tank. So, <laughs> so, and then there was uh, Paul, my assistant manager. Paul uh, spoke maybe he spoke with about as much economy of language uh, as probably a deaf mute. Uh, I I don't think I heard the guy say more than a hundred words the entire six months that I worked there. 
Paul had some interesting idiosyncrasies. Uh, he would, uh, at closing every night, he would always order a large pizza, go into the office and eat it while he was counting up all the tills and doing the deposit. And then he would go to the bathroom, and it was pretty well known that he was uh, having some kind of an eating disorder going on there, you know. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I took it as like a learning experience, you know, from the guy, uh, Arthur, the 50-something-year-old uh, church pastor. He had his own church or whatever, and he would go into the box office, and he would always be reading the Bible in between the movies, when uh, everybody got their tickets and gone to the theater. And there was, uh, I think his name was uh, Sean. Sean would deal drugs to to Hunter and Ringo and some of the other, uh, some of the other team members. It was a learning experience, you know. But I uh, couldn't do without it, and that was certainly a community. Without a doubt. But I would just leave that place every single night just feeling like melancholy. Like, is this what working is like? Going in every single day, just being in this uh, unsafe environment, just not feeling comfortable, not feeling in control of yourself at all. Just being a constant punching bag to people. Like, I mean, I'm 16 years old. This is what the rest of my life is going to be like. Oh, man. I would drive home every night. I would always have to close every single night. I would go in at about uh, usually on Fridays. On Fridays, go in at like four o'clock, four o'clock, four thirty. Work the night shift. Get off at about ten thirty at night or so when the first movie started. Mop the floors. Always keeping an eye on the clock because my my second favorite place in the world, the movie gallery video store, closed at eleven. And that was my release. That was my escape from the whole long day. And this is something that has followed me to this day. And I don't know about you either. Having that movie, you know, to just pop in when you get home to just, you know, give yourself your life a little bit of levity is so important. I had no idea at that time that that would be a running theme throughout my entire life. But there it was. I would mop super, super fast. I would go in the bathroom where I was supposed to do a full bathroom check, you know, check all the toilets, make sure there was toilet paper. I went in there. I didn't check anything. I just signed my name. And if anything happened the next day, it couldn't be pinned on me. It'd just be some like, oh, somebody went in there. I must have gone in there afterwards, you know, after I had done a thorough check. Yeah. And there I went. I went in my car, you know, super melancholy still, driving home through the foggy nights, there in uh, January, February, March of 1999. And for some reason, uh, I had this CD that was in my car. I think I was driving my mom's minivan at the time, so I had this uh, portable compact disc player that you uh, had to plug into your car, and you could play it over the car stereo using a tape, using a tape jack. And I was listening to the Wallflowers bringing down the horse album all the time. I think because it just put me in this certain mood. And even today when I hear that album, you know, that song One Headlight, I always just think about driving from the 
Colonnade Carmike Dollar Theater to movie gallery, just praying and crossing my fingers that, that I could make it by 11 before they closed. And after a few weeks of doing this, every Friday night, this woman who worked the late shift at movie gallery, just like I worked the late shift at the dollar theater, this older woman in her forties, of course, it's not that old to me now, but it was old back then. <laughs> this woman in her forties, she recognized that, uh, that I, that I needed that, that I, I was, uh, I would always come at a certain time. So one night she asked me, why are you always here at this time of night? Why don't you come earlier? And I said, well, I, I'm working at the dollar theater and just, you guys are like the one thing that really keeps me going. That makes me so happy at the end of a long shift of just getting butter all over my trousers. So after that, she started leaving the movie gallery open until I could get there every Friday night. It got to the point where I would call her from the theater, letting her know I'm coming. And she'd be like, okay, I'll stay open for you, hon. And, uh, man, the things you start remembering once you get to talking about movie theaters. <laughs> you know. But yeah, I think about that that movie theater that was my first job, the uh, Colonnade Movie Theater and the Colonnade Shopping Center. The, it was a car mic that closed around 2002, and it's, it's a Gold's Gym now. And I, I think about that, that if movie theaters went away altogether... You know, that would be a whole era lost of first jobs, of kids working these first jobs, learning about the world, learning about benefits, working with the shady people. And yeah, that would be sad. Maybe movie theaters shouldn't go away. about this girl I used to work with, Ashley, who really, I think, liked me. I used to get really excited when I would be assigned to, uh, to beer duty with her. You know, we would have to patrol all the movie theaters and make sure people weren't, like, sneaking in beer and things like that. <laughs> Enjoy this music.
back. Hope you enjoyed that uh, little musical interlude. Interlude. Yeah, we had some songs there. Thorough Queen. It's the first song you heard there by the Agrarians from their album Family Band. After that, we had Pretend. Really cool surf rock. I like surf rock this time of year. Actually, it comes off of a mixtape called June is Surf Music Month. The artist is Melissa Bellarossa. And you can find both those albums right now for free, meaning like you don't have to buy them and you can also even use them in your own podcast. As long as you attribute them, which I just did. On the freemusicarchive.org. What a great resource just to like listen to music. One of my favorite things about doing the show that I forgot about is just sitting here for like uh, an hour or two each week just to uh, curate music to play here on the show. Try to fit music that guy, you know, goes with the vibe or that's just cool. You know, it's fun. Definitely does not provoke a sense of melancholy the way that the wallflowers do with uh, bringing down the horse. Still like that album, though. By the way, I still have no website. So if you want to listen to the show, well, I mean, you're already listening to it, but check out uh, the Overnightscape Underground, ONSUG.com. That's where uh, that's where I'll be. That's where I am. It's a great network of fellow podcasters. I've been uh, hosting shows on there now for 10 years. Technically seven because I took, you know, three years off, but... Here I am, still doing it. Go and uh, search the Overnight Scape Underground on any podcast app of your choice to get it. You can also uh, find me on YouTube at uh, Mike Booty. That's where I'm now. I'm actually there right now, hosting a show. So if you're watching the live stream, either now or uh, ten years from now, welcome. something though she saw Mike Fallopian again and did trace the text of the courier's tragedy a certain distance those follow-ups were no more disquieting than other revelations which now seemed to come crowding and exponentially is that the more she collected the more would come to her until everything she saw smelled dreamed remembered would somehow come to be woven into the Tristero. That's the beginning of chapter four of The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, a book I uh, read last week. If you've never read any Pynchon and you're into mysteries and conspiracies and uh, weird stuff and puns and funny jokes and funny names, uh, you should read some Thomas Pynchon. Uh, probably start with the crying of lot 49 at 138 pages it is his uh, shortest book but the one to me that's easiest to understand is uh, inherent vice also because they made a movie of it it's a pretty by the book adaptation i'm listening to the uh, 
audiobook of Inherent Vice after I watched the movie last week, and yeah, it's pretty straight up. Probably one of the most uh, by-the-book uh, movie adaptations I've ever seen. But so, reading the Crying a Lot 49 to bring this up, that um, the book is all about unraveling codes that seem to pop up every day in our lives. You know, we, we see these codes as we go through uh, our daily grind that seem to mean something to us on the surface. For years, I was born on September 9th, 19th. I'm sorry. I forgot my own birthday. I was born on September 19th. And for years, I would look at the clock twice a day, always at the same time, 919, 919 in the morning, 919 at night. Didn't matter what I was do, would do, I would always be compelled to uh, look at the clock at 919, no matter what. And it would always show 919. It would freak me out. And that hasn't happened in years. But that's some kind of a weird code, something where a number pops up coincidentally throughout your life, and you feel like there's something to it. You feel like there's uh, some information that's beamed to you, you know, from an unknown source. You just can't quite put your finger on what it is. And that's what the Crying A Lot 49 is. Uh, the main character, Oedipa Moss, is tasked with being the executor of the will of a former boyfriend who's, who, who dies before the book opens. And, you know, she starts out as this uh, run-of-the-mill 1960s housewife in California. And as soon as she begins to uh, look into the dealings of this deceased former boyfriend, she starts to see odd patterns and codes and things that just quite cannot be coincidences. They're, they're too close together. There's got to be some hidden meaning behind it. She kind of feels this early in the book when she's, uh, she meets the, she meets this lawyer who's the co-executor of the state named Brad Metzger. And they end up watching this movie that just randomly happens to be on in her hotel room. And that's all of chapter two, which is another reason I love Thomas Pynchon books because he loves to put, weird movies and stories within stories in his books. They're watching this movie through chapter two and the child actor in the movie happens to be Brad Metzger as a young boy acting in that movie. The, the very man who, whom she's watching the movie with. And she's just like, this was set up. There's absolutely no way that this obscure movie from 30 years ago would uh, be on the television here in the same room as I'm with this man, but here it's so. And so she goes to the book and she, she starts to un unravel the mystery of the Tristero system, which seems to be this ancient postal network for underground revolutionaries going back about 300 years that still exist in modern day San Francisco. Of course, I said this book was written in the 1960s, which at that time was, of course, the height of the counterculture movement in the United States. So the idea is that uh, if you want to write a letter to your fellow brother in arms, you know, you can't trust the United States Postal Service because they will read your mail. That's something that Richard Nixon seemed to have in common with the hippies. He seemed to be just as paranoid as them. But uh, anyway, that's another story. So the idea is you have this underground network that's been in place for hundreds of years, a, a way of 
transferring letters and, uh, and information from one revolutionary to another via this uh, underground network. So everywhere she goes, she sees hints of this underground network of the Tristero system. There, there's always this uh, muted post horn symbol that she seems to see everywhere. So why am I bringing this up? I'm not quite doing this to review a book. I, I'm sort of wanting to talk about, The fact that I, I really do feel like uh, my generation, at least, are, are people who are alive right now in the world, seem to be obsessed with uh, conspiracies and paranoia and codes within codes. There's some spooky stuff happening on a dollar bill, you know, that kind of stuff. We're always looking for things, you know, some kind of hidden meaning, you know, 919. Why am I always looking at my watch at 919, you know? And I mentioned the, the Overnightscape Underground Network of podcasters. So I am, I'm on this network, and uh, the, 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 the man, the, the myth, the legend, the, the guy who started it all, this man named Frank Edward Nora, out of New Jersey, has been talking for years about the number 209, 209. He doesn't know, I don't think he knows exactly what it is, but 209 seems to be a number that pops up everywhere. And once you get it in your head, you start to see that number everywhere. You know, I remember uh, one time I was watching the movie Poltergeist and the family at the end of that movie, after their house, uh, their haunted house gets sucked up into hell or wherever it goes, you know, and they have to obviously move out because <laughs> they're homeless. Um, they go to a hotel and they check into room 209. Okay, so again, I, I think that's just a common room number, obviously. But I think uh, Frank said that, uh, you know, the, the number 209 popped up to when he was um, in college and he had the room number in his dorm as 209. And then he went to this mixer, you know, this, this meeting of all the other, uh, you know, dorms on his campus when he was a freshman there and he happened to meet this other guy and strike up a conversation and they seemed to have a lot of the same interest. And he asked him where he's staying. And he said, Oh, I'm staying at the uh, dorm on the other side of campus in room two Oh nine. So it just seemed weird that two guys of the same interest stayed in the same room. And I think from there, that's when Frank became obsessed with it. And he seems to have gotten a lot of people on the overnight scape network uh, interested in the number two Oh nine as well. And it's just this code. We don't quite know what it is. What could it be? Could it be a portal to another world? Could it be just a common number that is uh, supplanted in everything from, you know, pop culture? I remember when I was in Disney World and I kept looking for the number 209 and I saw it randomly spray painted on a monorail pylon, a pylon for the, the you know, a column that holds up the monorail system in Epcot Center. Everything from pop culture to politics you know, keep seeing it everywhere, man. And I don't think about it so much anymore, yet I still do see that number. But I remember something really weird happened when um, many years ago, about six years ago, um, a woman who was a fellow podcaster, we call her Bicoastal Becky, who does a podcast as she travels across the country with her husband, Bob, in her RV, she was passing through Birmingham and she sent me an email. Hey, Mike, do you want to meet up 
one day. And I, I thought I thought that was a great idea. Yeah, Becky, let's meet up. And uh, she asked me, where do you want to meet up? And I said, uh, why don't we meet up in this Walmart parking lot that's near my work in Homewood, Alabama. I'll go by there on my way to work. I'll stop in, you know, and she's like, great. I'll make you some pancakes and my husband Bob and I will sit in the RV and we'll just talk and uh, maybe record each other for our respective podcast. I said, that's great. Okay. So the day comes and, uh, I go, I go by, I go to that Walmart and lo and behold, it just strikes me the address for this particular Walmart. The street address is two Oh nine and the zip code is three, five, two Oh nine. Yeah, it's just freaky, man. Just a freaky coincidence. The story doesn't stop there. You know, two people on the Overnight Scape Network just happened to meet. A network that's obsessed with the number 209. We just happened to meet in a place that uh, has two 209s in the address. Okay? But the story doesn't stop there. Uh, about six months or so ago, I'm doing a delivery for the DoorDash food delivery service, the the service that fired me. If you want to know that story, listen to last week's episode, the Midnight Citizen episode 215. I'll tell you all about it. But when I was back working for DoorDash, I uh, went and did a food delivery for Walmart. I had to go to Walmart and pick up a bunch of groceries. When I picked up those groceries, I put in the address, and it turned out that the address they wanted to go to me for me to go was number 209. So I picked up a food delivery from a street address 209, zip code 35209, to deliver to an address 209. It was just creepy, creepy stuff, man. <laughs> so, so that happened. And yeah, it just I don't know if this code means anything. It's just a coincidence. And the way that we are as human beings, we always want to look for uh, things to have more meaning than they actually do. Because our lives are generally kind of mundane. And I think the reason that we in this world are so obsessed with uh, picking apart things, trying to look for things under the surface, thinking that the world is run by some kind of an Illuminati deep under the ground somewhere, I don't know. I think it just has something to do with the fact that we are in a world that uh, has surpassed adventure, surpassed exploration. There's no blank spaces on the map anymore. So we seem to be looking for an underworld that's not on the map, that's fully uncharted to explore. That's what we're trying to do, I think. Uh, with with looking at these codes, just stirring up drama. I don't know. Maybe there is something there. I don't know. Maybe that's what they want me to think. I'm a sheeple. I don't know. <laughs> or a she person. No, that that doesn't sound right at all. Uh. But I was watching this movie this week that I had heard about while I was reading The Crying A Lot 49 called Under the Silver Lake from a couple of years ago. It's a movie that came out and uh, 
pretty much got dismissed by almost everybody because it's a two and a half hour long movie where a guy is just searching for to, to he's trying to solve a code. He meets this girl who ends up vanishing and he starts seeing these symbols everywhere. And he, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but it's essentially that where the, the, the whole damn mystery, the whole damn journey over two and a half hours, he's really at no better place at the end of the movie than he was at the beginning. Even though there is some weird stuff going on. But it is an exploration, though, of how um, in the late 20 teens, we uh, have become a society obsessed with trying to figure out what we're about, trying to define ourselves. We're certainly not about exploring new frontiers because we can't anymore. We have... uh, two new men in space right now. Uh, And, you know, flown up there by private enterprise by, uh, not Tesla. SpaceX. Is it Elon Musk? (laughs) They're floating up there in the international space station. And everybody's saying that this is kind of the first step, the next step that gets us to Mars. So that's the next frontier. We've been trying to get there for years. Um, the weird thing is, those guys, name, the, the spacemen, they're named Bob and Doug. Like Bob and Doug McKenzie floating over the Great White North. That's weird. Maybe that's a code. I don't know. <laughs> but there's just nothing else to discover anymore. So here we are in, in, in on Earth trying to make up meaning as we go along. <laughs> I think uh, one of the reasons that the Crying a Lot 49 works as a mystery is because it was written in the 1960s, in 1965, and it it took place uh, during this time where uh, generally there was a lot of uncertainty in the world about where we were going to go, what we were going to end up as, where was America actually going to become communist? Was there a real chance of the dominoes falling? And there was a revolution in the air. And there's this certain symmetry that I see with the, the times that we live in now, because obviously in the past uh, couple of weeks, you know, to add a uh, insult to infection, we have these uh, horrible uh, riots going on in cities all over the country, including one here in uh, Birmingham, Alabama that happened the other day. And people certainly don't know what, what, what's going to happen to this country. Um, nobody seems to trust the police right now. Nobody seems to trust the government at all. Um, run by this president who's actually threatening you know, military force in cities that uh, don't get the National Guard involved. And essentially turning it into mili- a militaristic state. I don't think it will come to that. But... Uh, it's certainly very scary rhetoric. And so right now uh, we look for codes more than anything else to try and figure out who is all behind this. What, why are we living in this right now? And it is uh, 
like the last 100, 200 years of history have suddenly just uh, thrown all their shit <laughs> on, on the year 2020. But... Yeah, uh, here in uh, Birmingham, Alabama the other night, um, there was a protest that started out peacefully. And uh, then the crowd headed over to a Confederate monument, because this is Alabama, and Birmingham, Alabama certainly does not have the most uh, simple history with uh, civil rights. They see this uh, monument to the Confederate Navy. And they've been trying to get it removed for uh, years. And uh, the black mayor of Birmingham has tried covering it up. And then the state of Alabama, which is incredibly red and conservative, unlike Birmingham itself, which is the largest city in the state, but uh, heavily African-American, which I think uh, the state itself kind of resents uh, threatened to sue Birmingham. If you cover that thing up, we're going to charge you $25,000 a day. If you remove it, we're going to charge you $25,000 a day. Okay. So I think they worked it out with the state to where they could uh, cover it up temporarily, but that was not good enough for the protesters. The other night, the protesters went over there and they started uh, taking hammers and large concrete slabs, and they started chipping away at it. Chip, chip, as uh, the crowd shouted, Black Lives Matter. And I wasn't there. I, I you know, uh, I did not want to go down to this protest because, uh, be it peaceful or not, with good intentions, the night before, we had seen all of these other cities erupting in chaos and violence after the uh, tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of a, uh, a white police officer. And uh, I just knew something was going to happen. And sure enough, it did. They, they started uh, getting really violent with that monument and tying ropes to it and trying to pull it down this big concrete monument, which I think it was more of a statement than it was an act of, uh, you know, civil um, destruction because really, to get that thing out of there, you would have needed a backhoe and some pretty heavy-duty, you know, cables and winches and all that stuff. But at a fever pitch, Mayor Randall Woodfin, the the once again the African American mayor of Birmingham, comes down and he gets in the middle of this uh, of this angry mob, and he tells them, give me 24 hours to work it out with the state. I will get this thing removed. And that seemed to abate them. That seemed to settle them down. You know, the ropes were taken down. The people began dispersing. Uh, but at some point, somebody walked up to some windows and started throwing things in them. And uh, there they are walking down uh, 19th Street and 3rd Avenue throwing bricks in uh, the uh, windows of Red Mountain Theater and the Alabama Theater going through the civil rights district and tearing it up. And a lot of people are saying that this could be the work of outside agitators who don't care, care anything about the cause at all. There's just not enough data to support it. Nevertheless, the, it did turn into a riot. Reporters were down there and they were uh, beaten up by, uh, by rioters, you know, 
And I woke up the next day and my, my wife fell, uh, was still up. I fell asleep while the uh, coverage was still happening. I woke up the next day to go to see in the, you know, first time in nine years, my wife actually put a barricade in front of our door because the riots actually uh, progressed over the bridge on 24th street and uh, into Southside where we live just a few blocks away. Certainly a scary time. And this thing where there's a lot of revolution in the air, right? The, you know, people are really uh, shouting for blood right now. And uh, this is a moment that's going to be talked about for years and years. And uh, we're just trying to make sense of it. I haven't weighed in on this at all on social media or any place. I mean, this is the first time I'm even talking about it on my podcast because I think I need to talk about it here, you know, just to kind of get it out because obviously there's been a lot of opinions come out. And uh, I, I quietly, I quite honestly am sort of uh, hesitant to put anything out into the world about this because I am a, I am a white male. And I'm not about to say that white males have it tough in the world, okay? We don't. But... If you happen to say anything that's kind of against the discourse right now, uh, you know, uh, you do tend to be taken to task just to, just a little bit. Uh, take this guy uh, who owns this Parkside Bar here in Birmingham. This bar, which a few years ago moved into Avondale, uh, this historically black district, and... Uh, put in this bar for uh, it was kind of a hipster bar for lack of a better word. And uh, it was in the process of uh, gentrifying the entire area and uh, very successful place. And I've been very nice place. I mean, I've been there many times. I've celebrated new year's Eve there before with a bunch of my friends. <laughs> the owner of this place gets on, uh, sends out a letter to his staff firing two people who went to the protest suggesting that they start raising prices as a, as a protest tax. And then he says that George Floyd is a thug and uh, yeah, that place isn't going to be there in about 10 and uh, in, in, in this time next week, I'm just going to make that guess right now. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, the reception to that was pretty cool from people. So people are just looking for meaning right now. I think that's all it comes down to. People are just looking for meaning, looking for answers to why this is all suddenly happening in 2020. You can blame it on Donald Trump. I don't know. A lot of people do. A lot of people just uh, blame it on just uh, these heavily covered incidents that seem to be happening by the week, almost as in as much frequency as school shootings where uh, white police officers just kill black black people who seem to be unarmed, who seem to not really be doing anything. And even if they are doing something, I mean, why can't they be tased and taken down? Uh, there seems to be just be weird things happening right now. And in these times of high tension, people look to codes to sort of, uh, sort out the chaos. You know,
Yeah, I would say definitely check out The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. Uh, it's tough to talk about books with uh, other people. Not sure, I'm not trying to snail, sound like a snob or anything, but I have been doing a lot of reading this summer, and it's become quite a bit of my uh, life because I am an English teacher and I have to read a lot. I put a summer reading out uh, list out for my kids, and I'm reading a lot of those books. And, uh, but it's almost like I'm doing the whole thing in secret because you go out in the public, and there's you can't really talk to people about them because nobody has that. Uh, nobody's either read those books, or if they have read them, they haven't read them in a while since like high school. So, <laughs> I, I think like the thing with books is uh, we we really tend to put an emphasis on the classics. Okay. Uh, the, 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 you know, the books that have always been read, not so much the new books. People don't talk about new books as much in public with other people. They tend to talk about the classics where it's a lot easier to talk with people about movies because when it comes to movies, uh, people will talk about the new movies cause that's what everybody sees. That's what's on Netflix and Hulu. So it's a lot easier to talk with movies about people. And, uh, what I found the other day, I went to this uh, cigar bar where I like to hang out from time to time. And uh, I was talking to a guy there who works who works in the cigar bar who uh, likes books about as much as I do. And we started talking about Thomas Pynchon and having this pretty long discussion about him. And we got into re- talking about uh, like Graham Greene because I'm reading one of his books right now. And uh, before you knew it, it was like we sucked the air out of the room. Just the, the entire room before I had walked into it, it had been really thriving and talking about other things. And, uh, then we started talking about Thomas Pynchon and, uh, like one guy got up to leave. I guess we, it wasn't interesting to him anymore. So, um, you know, it, it's like kind of felt almost like a pariah for a second there. Cause I was talking about books, but, uh, that's why I have this show. So I can talk about it with you and suck the air out of the, uh, out of the podcast. So with all that being said, let's take a trip down to the Video Street Video Store. Yeah, the Video Street Video Store is a place where we go every single week. So uh, so I can take a bathroom break and get some more coffee and uh, you can watch about 10 minutes of uh, interesting, cool videos. Yeah. So... I'll see you after the Video Street Video Store. You're listening to the Midnight Citizen Show. You gotta know how to catch 
You gotta know how to throw That's why I play in right field Way out where the dandelions grow As a proud sponsor of Little League Baseball Pizza Hut welcomes all the kids who make it great Making it great You know, working in the theater box office can be quite an experience. Howdy, ma'am. Each day you come in contact with a seemingly endless stream of people whom you've never met before and whom you know nothing about. Two tickets, please. <laughs> in fact, all you know about each customer is what you observe during your short interaction with them. There's no time for anything else. And for those customers on the other side of this glass, there's no difference. They have one moment, hopefully a brief one, in which they make their ticket transaction with you. And in that moment, they'll get their all-important first impression of this AMC theater. It's up to you to make sure it's a good one. Thank you. Now the truth is that even though you may think that you've been hired to sell tickets, you're really a goodwill ambassador of sorts for AMC. I mean, think about it. When you go into a restaurant or a store, or even if you're a student entering a classroom for the very first time, that feeling that you get from the first person you interact with tends to stay with you, regardless of whatever else happens. You might say it sets the tone for the entire visit. If the first person our guest sees is pleasant, friendly, and helpful, then they probably expect their entire visit to be a positive one. But if you come off non-caring, unfriendly, distant, or just downright weird, then it's going to make everyone else's job at the theater that much harder. And our guest may decide to visit another theater the next time around. So the bottom line here, folks, is that although we're in the business of showing films, we are also very much in the business of customer service. And that service starts with you and how you deal with the public right here at our starting point, the box office. Now, before the first guest arrives at the theater, it's your responsibility to make sure that the box office is neat, organized, and clean, and that all the information we're providing for customers is correct. Check the ads, the phone recordings, and the marquees against the show schedule to make sure they're accurate. Be aware of any special showings or circumstances for that day. And you should have a synopsis and a newspaper ad for our guests to read, should they have any questions about a film. Of course, one area that really needs your attention is the cash. Now remember to always count your cash before starting your shift. The amount you are given must balance against the receipts and transactions during your shift. You're also responsible for making sure that passes, exchange coupons, gift certificates, credit cards, and movie watcher transactions are accounted for. Okay, so now you're ready to greet the public. Or are you? Remember that one brief moment we talked about earlier? Well, you're about to have several hundred of those over the next few hours. And each one of them is your chance to let the guests know that we're glad they've chosen AMC to see today's movie. It begins with eye contact and a smile. Hello, welcome to AMC. May I help you? It's important to always repeat the transaction and to leave the cash you're given within view until everything's completed. Also, if the bill is larger than a 20, examine it quickly and discreetly to make sure it's not counterfeit. Generally, any bill dated after 1990 will have a metallic strip woven into the bill, like this one. Your manager or supervisor will have other tips on detecting counterfeit bills. Here's seven, eight, 
9, 10, 30, and 50. Enjoy your show. Thank you. The theater business is primarily a cash business. Therefore, safety and security should always be at the forefront of your mind. Always be aware of the following three safety tips. One, never count cash in public view. Two, use the large bill drop slot if you have one. And three, no one other than designated individuals should be allowed in the box office. That'll be $7. In addition to cash, you will also receive credit cards. While a pleasant attitude is always important at the box office, a credit card transaction allows you to learn a customer's name. What better way to employ one of our six F's of customer service than right here and call our guest by their name? Thank you, Mr. McDonald. Here's your ticket, your receipt, and enjoy the show. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to follow your theater's specific policies for dealing with cards that get declined. Now, let's talk about speed. Speed? Oh, what a movie. Sandra Bullock, it's terrific. Is it playing here? That whole bus scene was terrific. Keanu Reeves, no, I can do with that. No, not that speed. This speed. We may not know a lot about our guests in the time we sell them their tickets, but we do know one thing. They want their tickets fast. And of course, the first letter of the word fast is F. One way to speed things up is when a patron may not be aware that a particular line is open, you can let them know by politely making an announcement. There are two lines open to serve you. Hi, welcome to AMC. Something else that slows down lines is when a customer you've just helped doesn't move far enough away from the counter to let someone else come forward. By making eye contact with the next person in line and offering to help them, you can move things along at a faster pace. Now, if a show is sold out, be sure to suggest another feature for that guest. Also, communicate to the others in line through signs and announcements which shows are sold out. And keep in touch with the ushers. They need to be seating those shows. Everyone on the AMC team needs to know what's going on so we can best serve our guests. There you go. And by the way, the line for that film is forming on your right once you enter the building. You'll see it. And seating should start in about five minutes, which gives you plenty of time to visit our concession stand, okay? Enjoy the movie. Now this device, I think we're all familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, I'll get it. It's probably my agent. Yeah, or one of my many fans. Hello. Really? I may already be a winner. Now, if the theater hasn't opened yet, no problem. The caller should receive the same courteous service that people in line receive and all calls should be answered within three rings. But what about when the phone's ringing and you're sort of busy? If you don't handle things correctly, a three-ring circus is what you're likely to have on your hands. Okay, that'll be 750. Excuse me, please. Hello, thank you for calling AMC Springdale 30. This is Kathy. Can you please hold? After completing the current transaction, okay. go back to the phone and quickly help the caller, or else find someone who can. And keep tabs to make sure that the caller is taken care of so they don't sit waiting on hold and have a frustrating experience before they even get to the theater. Okay, my little co-host, how old are you? Sounds <laughs> good. Ah, you see that, folks? Thank you very much for illustrating my point exactly. You see, most of us, some more than others, do not like being asked about our age. So at AMC, we try to tactfully handle this issue. Basically, our policy is that if someone is seeking reduced price tickets, be it seniors or students, then they'll ask for them, and that's what we sell them. Don't ask someone to prove that they're a senior. And should a request be made for a student ticket, you may need to ask for a student ID. 
check with your manager for your theater-specific guidelines. Okay, now a word about tickets. Rule number one is that everyone who enters the theater has one. That means people with passes, on-camera hosts, anybody. Secondly, tickets cannot be resold. In other words, if you have a refund or overpunch, these tickets can't be sold to someone else. And if those customers choose to see another show, hey, they'll need tickets for that one. Now, some customers at your window will be movie watchers. This is a program unique to AMC that rewards customers for their patronage with free popcorn, drinks, even free movies. It's like a frequent flyer program for moviegoers. Your manager or supervisor will completely explain how the point system works and how it affects your duties at the box office. Finally, when it's time to close up for the night, be sure to leave your station as clean as when you started. Also, secure the ticket stock and change all the marquees to reflect the times for the next day's shows. Once you've turned in your cash and receipts and completed all of your additional responsibilities, the manager will give you the okay to clock out. So there you have it, the starting point for people when they come to an AMC theater, the box office, and how you deal with phone calls, lines, age restrictions, discounts, credit cards, and the Movie Watcher program will determine whether our guests have a positive first impression. Well, it's back to the idea of expectations. People should expect to have a good time at our theater, and you, as a vital part of the AMC team, are expected to make sure that they do. Oh, I'll get it. Oh, another big contest you've entered? Yeah, he's right here. For me? Hello. I won! got a fella who's uh, watching live commenting that uh, that last video may be an interesting uh, may make this show an interesting time capsule if AMC theaters does not make it through the year I don't know if you were listening earlier earlier in the show but uh, that's true that's exactly what I was thinking when I found that so that was the video street video store for this week uh, the first uh, video we watched there was a uh, a Pizza Hut commercial from 1990. But I always remember. You may remember too if you uh, rented or bought a certain videotape. Anybody remember that videotape? I was gonna, uh, I was gonna give a prize for this. Does anybody remember that videotape? Anyone? Anyone? Yes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know. The uh, live-action movie. It's just a huge hit when it came out on videotape. I wanted it so bad. I was uh, nine years old. I was actually eight years old, and I remember wanted it for my ninth birthday. Came out a week before my ninth birthday. That's the only thing I wanted in the world was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on uh, videotape. Like my dad calls me into the kitchen. It sounds like I'm in trouble for something. And he backs away, and there it is. That beautiful, stupid box. <laughs> and you put it in, the first uh, thing that you saw 
after the uh, FHE, the Family Home Entertainment logo, was that Pizza Hut commercial from 1990. So hope you enjoyed that. To the gentleman watching live, you are these, uh, this week's uh, winner. You get a prize. And I just sent it off while uh, you were watching that video. I, uh, I sneezed in an envelope and uh, mailed it to you. So it should be on its way. And the next video that we watched, that was really gross. Uh, the next video that we watched was from 1997, an AMC, of course, theaters uh, training video. AMC is a movie theater chain that uh, did not come to Birmingham until uh, just a few years ago. So that's definitely not something that I would have seen if I had worked at an AMC theater back in the 90s. But um, I imagine a lot of... Uh, Employees did a lot of young 16 year olds who were uh, wearing butter stained, sticky red vests and bow ties and slacks. You know, I imagine they, they got a lot of that. Yeah, it may make this, it may very well make this episode of The Midnight Citizen number 216 an interesting time capsule if AMC does not make it through this year. And with that being said, let's take a trip, another trip down to Viscaga, Alabama, along the banks of the Cabo River. It's been a radical week down there. Now that school is out and summer is in full swing, the uh, streets are running wild with kids. Not so much the high school kids, really. They come at night, mostly, to cruise down Stanton Street or park at Joe Town's Cosmic Twin Drive-In. Or they migrate and caravans down the interstate to the Galleria in Birmingham. And until then, when the sun goes down, they lie around their houses like vampires with the shades drawn. But the young hooligans, the elementary kids and the middle schoolers, you see them at all hours of the waking day in Viscaga, beginning early in the morning when they are released from their houses by their yawning parents like bucking bulls out of the gate. They storm the fast food establishments of Murphy Avenue, Fast Burger, Hot Diggity Dogs, and Ice Palace. There, they blow their daily allowances in a heartbeat, mostly on the dessert menus, because even though it's barely 10 a.m., it is already baking hot, and the kiddos indulge like rescued castaways in their waffle cones and milkshakes, biting the heads off fruit sickles in the shape of their favorite cartoon characters, chewing on the gummy eyeballs and powering through the relentless head rushes brought on by suicide slurpees. This all has a tendency to create a public safety crisis. During the long, hot days of summer, the adults do as they always do in Viscaga. They go to work and run errands, sit quietly in shaded areas and read books, or gossip with their neighbors about other neighbors. But now that summer is here, of course, they must contend with the throngs of youth all hopped up on unregulated quantities of caffeine and sugar, crossing the street when the sign says, Don't walk, pulling off ever-increasingly dangerous dives at the community pool, and feeding what's left of their home fries from Fast Burger to feral raccoons in Purcell Park. But the adults deal with it for a short while at least, because they know as there is only a short window of time between when the final bell of the school year rings and the community activities begin. The summer day camps and vacation Bible schools, the junior scholar program at the public library, 
All of these day programs have a tendency to consume the little darling's time and energy all the way until Labor Day, when the bell rings again. While the opening day of J.C. Junior Baseball season was Saturday, it all began earlier in the week on Tuesday, as the season always does, with the baseball draft at Purcell Park, where a large plot the size of three Walmarts in their parking lots was cleared long ago of its invasive plants and debris to make way for a series of peewee regulation baseball diamonds. The land was bought for the city and the materials donated to construct the park by Pete Purcell himself, born dirt poor in the town and receiving from it only a ninth grade education, then going on to found one of the largest regional insurance companies in the Deep South. A multimillionaire at the age of 33, Purcell had been the town's favorite son, always, even years after his death. A man of legendary modesty, he did not even ask for the part to be named for himself, or for a bronze statue in his likeness to be placed at its entrance, but both were so done. The J.C. Junior Baseball Draft is not, in the normal sense of the word, so much a process of elite selection. Rather, every kid who wants to play gets to play. They're divided into age groups from T-ball all the way to 7th and 8th grade, and from there the players are randomly assigned to their individual teams. And so the kids found their tribes, high-fiving each other and meeting their coaches, who presented them with box-fresh uniforms that were donated by their generous community sponsors, and going on to hold their first practices while parents snapped pictures and cheered them on. But one team dragged behind all this excitement, a mess of 5th and 6th graders, who all sat around in the crisp cut grass of the outfield, cross-legged and heads slumped, scratching bug bites, waiting for their coach to appear. We should just go home, Doug Myrtle said, picking for one of anything more entertaining to do, a hanging piece of rubber off his right cleat. Whoever our coach is, he ain't coming. Probably got a good look at us and went heading for the hills, Curtis Cussler said. Nobody could disagree with Cussler. They were a pretty crummy-looking crew. Old cleats, chipped gloves, ragged clothes that were stained with dirt before they showed up to play. Not one of them could deny there was something sad and odd about the design of their team's assigned players, which were supposed to be random. Finally, Dirk Matthews said what they all were thinking. This is all your fault, jerk-off. What did I do? Brian Kirkoff said. In a band apart, he set apart from them, by about six feet, undeniably ostracized. Easy, Dirk said. Your pop's the mayor. Obviously, he pulled some strings and got all the worst players on the same team. That's bull crud, Brian yelled. And before a team of ants could swarm a picnic blanket, they were all on top of each other, shoving and punching and biting. Hats flew and gloves came off, and cleats that had been sloppily tied were left ravaged in the dirt. Suddenly, their brawl was interrupted by a loud coming from over the left field fence somewhere. They all stood together and looked into the distant parking lot where the tall, proud statue of Pete Purcell stood and saw that its pristine surroundings planted with blooming flowers of all varieties had been unceremoniously mowed over by the beat-up body of an old rabbit convertible. The rabbit belonged to Cleveland Snodgrass, who seemed to be about as happy with his part job as one could be. He climbed out of the car, for the door had been jammed since the Carter administration, and brought out with him a six-pack of Miller High Life Tallboys, with three of the plastic rings already empty. He began to walk into the park, but was stopped by two police officers, Wilson and Petty, who, up until now, had been happy to be assigned to the armchair job of draft day. 
Hey, Snodgrass, what do you think you're doing? Wilson yelled. I'm heading to practice. What's it look like? Well, does that look like a space to you? I'm part there, ain't I? So, yeah. Wilson looked to his partner and wondered, as they always did with Cleveland Snodgrass, what good talking would do. Still, he said to the man as he walked away from them, We're going to have to cite you for that. Go ahead, hot shots. I'm already doing my community service, dingleberries. Cleveland Theodore Snodgrass was indeed here at Peep Herself Park for community service. This is what the town of Escaga had brought him to. He not intended to defile a revered piece of town statuary upon his arrival. It just seemed the best and quickest spot in a parking lot that was full. But as he sat in the quiet of his house later that night, drinking his third whiskey sour and sorting out that day's realities from its hallucinations, he reflected on the poetry of this act. The town had, over many years, chipped away at his soul, and so it only seemed fitting that he should chip away at a piece of the town. He hadn't planned to spend the dog days of his life back here in Viscaga, where he had grown up in the grip of poverty, his single mother commuting an hour each way to Pell City, working a series of jobs to support him. Long ago, college had taken him far, far away to the big town, Atlanta, where he had become an all-star pitcher on a sports scholarship, and then it had gotten him drafted with the Chattanooga Lookouts, a farm team of the Cincinnati Reds, where he hoped to pay his dues quick and move on up to the show, because Chattanooga, Tennessee was as close to Viscaga as Cleveland ever hoped to be again. But it was not to be, because at the end of his first season, Cleveland's mom called. She had become sick, real sick, actually, and the endless string of dead-end jobs she had faithfully served through the years to make sure her son never had to come back to the town ever again ended up bringing him right back to care for her, because they refused to help float the bills. By the time Cleveland's mom had passed away, Cleveland was 29 and well beyond the minds of any major league scout. So he took up the family business, or businesses, slaving away a minimum wage as he drew further away from his prime, each waking day bringing him more respect for his mother and how she had done it all those years, and more contempt for the shop owners who did not take care of those who had made them rich. And so, 20 years later, here he was, still pushing the broom, mopping the floors, taking out the garbage, and the only assets to his name a broken-down rabbit he won in a game of horse, and the house his mother left him long ago, a ramshackle ranch with a possum nest in the crawl space, and always a full bar stocked with bottom-shelf spirits next to the TV. He loved its solitude, but sometimes, even for a loner like Cleveland, the silence became too deafening, and he occasionally hit the town. And that's what brought him to his community service in Purcell Park last Tuesday morning. For it turns out the police don't enjoy public urination, especially when it's on their police cruisers. You're going to be our coach, Dirk Matthews said, dusting off his hat. Don't blame me. Blame that fascist, Judge Gibbs. What's a fascist? Little Sam, Sam King asked, with his characteristic lisp that made the words sound cute, fuzzy, and kind of innocent. It's me from now on, Cleveland said, because like it or not, I'm your coach. What I say, you do. So get over to that dugout and suit up. You got practice. Move! The team moved haphazardly and took to the field for their allotted half hour, fielding plays in the academic sense, but in actuality looking like a gang of injured chimpanzees in a sensory deprivation tank. They dropped the ball more than they caught it, lost grips and slung bats, and ran bases about as fast as it takes an old man to sink into a warm bath. Cleveland could barely watch as he sat in the dugout, 
slurping his beer and chain smoking his Dutch masters. Actually, what baffled him most was his team's logo and uniforms. The Beavers, sponsored by Town of Viscaga. Looking at the other team's attire, the Bears, sponsored by Fastburger, the Tigers, sponsored by Roby's Tire and Oil Change, the Lions, the Vipers, the Sharks, all supported by local businesses. It seemed like one of those standardized test questions where you had to figure out the secret pattern. How goes it, coach? Your team getting ready for Saturday? This was rosy-cheeked Darla Huggins, commissioner of baseball, coming over to interrupt him now. Actually, Cleveland didn't mind Darla much. He really kind of admired her. Last year, she had left her husband, Bill Schwartz, that skunk, after she found out he'd been cheating on her, and ever since then had gotten along just fine by herself, doing her own thing and not putting up with all the daily BS. What's with the team's mascot, Cleveland said. The Beavers. All the Predators were taken, Darla said, smiling. They're a bunch of flatfoots, Darla shrugged. They're kids who shut up most on on last year's injured list. Parents started calling up, wanting them off their kids' teams next season so they wouldn't drag everybody down. That's the mayor's kid, ain't it? Cleveland was nodding toward Brian Kirkhoff, who was in the batter's box at the moment and clumsily swatting at the ball as if it were a fly swarming in an entropic patterns across the plate. Yes, it is, Darla said. Anyway, once they had enough bottom-tier players to make a full lineup, Duke Gibson called up Mayor Kirkhoff and told him the town was going to sponsor the team since no one else wanted them. So he sold out his own kid? He was on the injured list with the rest of them. And nobody wanted to coach them, so they took advantage of a washed-up pro who recently got cited for pissing on a cop car. I appreciate that, Darla. Hey, kid! Coach's attention snapped away from the commissioner to Kirkhoff, who had swung and missed for the ninth time in a row. You don't got to swing at every one. I can't see the damn ball, Kirkhoff shouted. Well, when you see it, that's when you swing. So the Bad News Beavers pressed on. They were the last team that day to hold practice, and by the time it was over, the park was nearly deserted. The other kids' parents had long ago taken their teams for hamburgers and celebration milkshakes. But Coach Snodgrass's team seemed to be a bunch of sad orphans, moping home by themselves, for their parents all worked during the day. Not even Brian Kirkhoff's father, the mayor, could make it, because, as he had explained to his son that morning, he had an important conference call, and home was only a few blocks away. And anyway, he didn't want to be that kid who grew up with his dad always around, giving him rides, keeping an eye on him. After all, Brian, he said, you're nearly 13. If we were Jewish, we'd call you a man. Mayor Lionel Kirkhoff really did have an important conference call that day at his office. It was with a group of out-of-town investors who had recently reached out to him, expressing their interest in Viscaga as the perfect location for a large-scale project. What exactly the project was, they refused to say, on the grounds that they didn't want to skip too far down the line, give away valuable corporate information, and tip off their competition. It's a little too early in the game to tell you, Mr. Mayor, one of the investors said through the speaker, but trust me, it will greatly benefit the both of us. I have no doubt, the mayor said with confidence, Viscaga could really use an adrenaline boost to its economy. I look forward to hearing your proposal. There was a long silence in the line, and for a moment, Lionel thought the connection had been cut. Finally, another investor chimed in. Yes, hopefully we will come to the point where we tell you what what it is, Mr. Mayor, but if I may be frank, it is not us who are proposing to you. Lionel Kirkhoff, you horse's ass. Of course they got all the cards here, and you, cocky and arrogant behind your desk, 
for once feeling like a power player mayor in the arena of world commerce got a little too big for your britches and probably turned them off just like you had a one wad of proverbial spinach in your teeth. Our economy could use an adrenaline boost, really? The comment haunted him long after the investors had hung up. He, Lionel Kirkhoff, the man of the people, may have just deprived his tiny town of great economic prestige by showing his cards before the flop, showing that Viscaga was desperate for an economic boom and that the people were tired of driving to Birmingham and Pell City for their jobs and their wares, throwing all their monies into some other town's prosperity. All he could do was pray the investors were still game and keep working his approval ratings. He slicked back his hair that Tuesday night, shaved his face and shined his shoes, put on his suit and tie, steamed and pressed, and complete with the American flag pinned to his lapel, drove out to greet the town with a smile and a handshake. Of course, that meant driving to Fox's Pizza, which tonight was the scene of the annual kickoff pizza party for baseball season. Fox's out on Route 78 was hopping. The Little Leaguers stuck to their newfound tribes, tearing up the cabinet arcades and skee-ball, and counting their tickets against the prizes in the prize chest they were going for that night. Meanwhile, their parents sat around the tables in the bar in the dining room, splitting pitchers of beer and ordering shots of bourbon, toasting to the new season, and making friendly bets on Saturday's series of games. And among the parents, Mayor Lionel Kirkhoff roamed, sure to greet each table with a smile and a handshake, and the minimum amount of conversation it would take to show he cared about each and every one of them before moving on to the next round of voters. Of course it was all genuine. He loved them, and they certainly loved him. They better have loved him, after all those years of paying his dues to the town, which ensured the landslide victory he had won last fall was no act of God. Yes, he had shown he was a true Viscaga man, the man of the people. He had been a deacon at the First Baptist Church since before his son Brian had been born. He had served on the county commission and volunteered for every volunteer event, the Boy Scout Christmas tree lots and the Humane Society adoption days, the town carnivals and the school plays, and the Hispanic Interest Coalition salsa cook-off to show he cared about the minority populations in town. It had all paid off, and now he was the mayor of the people working his way through the dining room of Fox's Pizza like an Olympic swimmer doing resistance training. He made sure to jot down their concerns and requests in his little black book. Finally, he made it to the bar where he put in an order for a Budweiser, which he didn't much care for, but it never hold, uh, hurt to hold a tall glass of domestic brew in a room full of the people for which he was the mayor. How'd the call go, Mr. Mayor? Lionel turned to his left his brief moment of silence being interrupted like the sudden belting of a pipe organ by a familiar, imposing voice. It was that of Duke Gibson, who was at Fox's Pizza tonight to serve in his official capacity as president of the JCs. But Lionel, seeing this foot, six-foot-seven man with broad shoulders and the aura of a loan shark, sunk in his seat, for he knew that any conversation with Duke tonight was not going to be made on the premise of peewee baseball. This was because Duke was also the owner of Gibson Construction, one of the area's largest employers. Any talk of potential construction projects greatly interested Duke Gibson, especially those of a large scale. In fact, it was he who had served as the introduction between the mayor and the investors he had spoken to that day on the phone. As Gibson looked down at him now with that piercing gaze that belonged more to a mafia don than a good-natured local businessman, Lionel was sure that word of his verbal foul had spread. 
The call with the investors, the mayor said. No, the call with your mom, Duke laughed. Yeah, the call with the investors. How'd it go? Is it sounding like they're going to build? Yes, sir, Lionel bluffed. They certainly sounded interesting. I hope so, because you know, Lionel, this project could be very big for the town. I could hire on a ton of people to build it. After it's built, a ton of your voters will have a place to work. No more commutes to Birmingham or Pell City. You could have a real centralized workforce, just like every mayor's tried to do for this town since we were kids. The mayor looked down at his beer and thought back to when he and Duke Gibson were kids. Back then, when the mayors were dreaming of centralized workforces, Duke didn't dream about anything more than beating the crap out of Lionel and taking his lunch money. It's just we don't exactly know what the project is yet, Duke. So how do we even know how many Viscoggins they're going to employ? Don't worry about it. I'm sure we'll get around to talking about it. But first, we've got to get them serious again. I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's invite them out here this Saturday to see the town for themselves. Show them what it's really like and all the possibilities for making money. This Saturday's opening day. I was planning on watching my kid's game. Exactly. It's opening day. The whole town will be down at Purcell Park. Can't think of a better way to show off our community spirit, can you? No, I guess not, but can't we do it next? Great, then, Duke pronounced. It's settled. They're going to meet us in front of City Hall at 11, so I'll see you then. There was so much in that sentence for the mayor to unpack. Duke was coming? And how did he even know the investors were available? He asked Duke. I talked to them today after your call. You called them? Actually, they called me. So I'll see you Saturday, 11 sharp. I'll sure you won't forget. And Duke stepped away from the mayor, taking a swig of Lionel's beer off the bar as he went, and quickly showing that he realized his mistake. Oops! Sorry about that, Mr. Mayor. Thought that was mine. He walked away laughing, and Lionel pushed the beer away. He didn't bother ordering another one. As Lionel sat there at the bar by himself, meditating on his mistake in the conference call, and how clearly the investors looked to Duke rather than him, Lionel began to feel another pair of eyes on him. These lazy and drifting on the cusp of a whiskey buzz. Hello, Cleveland. Mr. Mayor? The snarky way the drunk had emphasized his title. Lionel was sure Cleveland Snodgrass had witnessed the whole sad, emasculating episode. Lionel reached far down, tapped into his skills of municipal diplomacy, and pushed past it. What brings you here tonight? Haven't you heard, Cleveland said. I'm coaching your kid's team. You, Lionel said, shocked. What do you mean? I mean, I'm coaching your kid's team. That's my community service. Turns out your best bud Duke there called in a favor to Judge Gibbs. Well then, Lionel, being diplomatic, going for a positive outlook, hiding his growing impatience with Duke and the whole lot of those JCs, pillars of the Viscaga business community, stealing his every move. That's fine. Um, congratulations, Cleveland. Uh, I guess we all deserve a second chance. <laughs> Uh, how did Brian do in practice today anyway? He's around here someplace, Cleveland said, picking up his whiskey and making a getaway. Why don't you go ask him? Saturday. The blue, unobstructed sky. The fresh-cut grass. The spotless base bags. The dirt smelling sweet. The sound of popcorn bouncing like bullets at the concessions. The town of Escaga could not have asked for a better opening day. At 10 a.m. sharp, the distorted national anthem played from the outdated PA system in the announcer's box. The umpire shouted, play ball, and the bats began cracking. The stands thundered with cheers, 
the parents mad with pride for their sons, the fathers paying off their losses, the old-timers with no vested interest telling their fellow spectators who to keep an eye on, who's got a real future in the game. As the day unfolded, it became real clear who would own the season. In the first game, the Fastburger Bears triumphed in a 6-1 finish over Joe Town's Cosmic Twin Vipers. The second game saw the Tigers come back from an 8-1 slump with two bases loaded RBI and a home run by 8th grader Brady Tripp for a win over the Panthers 10-8. And the Video Street Video Store Sharks beat the holy shit out of the Roby's Tire and Oil Change Tigers 10-2 thanks to three power hitters who came in early and at just the right time in the lineup pretty much made sure their opponents gave up and spent the rest of the game chasing butterflies with their gloves. As you've seen, gentlemen, you've picked the perfect day to spend here, Duke Gibson was saying as he steered his truck into Purcell Park. And I think this next stop will show you what we're all about here in Viscaga. We like to call it the three C's, community, camaraderie, and competition. We love each other, but we like to compete. That's why Mayor Kirkhoff and I feel it's the perfect place for a business to thrive. Lionel had never heard of any three C's and figured Duke must have just made it up on the spot. It was pretty good, actually, and he made a note to use it in his rhetoric from now on. Actually, he had taken a lot of notes from Duke's political playbook this morning as Duke chauffeured the two investors in black suits around town, doing most of the talking while he, Lionel, sat bitch and listened. He listened to Duke make the pitch with a silver tongue, telling the investors what they wanted to hear and hyping the facts just enough to sound plausible. As they parked in a spot that Duke had thought to have reserved by the J.C.'s for their visit and stepped out to walk among the standing-room-only park, Lionel wondered why Duke hadn't just run for mayor himself. As a captain of industry, he was certainly more suited to working all the angles to get what he wanted. This statue, gentlemen, Lionel said in a rare moment that day of speaking, is Pete Purcell. He donated all this land you see to this, here to the city back in, why don't we go check out the games, Duke cut in and moved the men past the proud stance of Pete Purcell, leaving Lionel to catch up. Duke ushered the investors past the throngs of families with balloons and little girls with painted faces, boys in dirty uniforms drinking Cokes from styrofoam cups, munching on crushed ice and dipping their grimy hands into wadded pouches of big league chew. He bought them hot dogs and they took a seat on the bleachers. Lionel cringed as he saw the game Duke had chosen for them to watch. On the field in the batter's box, his son Brian had just struck out, and badly too, swinging the bat like a blind man with muscular dystrophy while the ball sailed through the strike zone. Out! the umpire shouted. Damn it! Brian said, and moped back to the dugout. As he went, he slung the bat hard at the fence, which caused the crowd behind it to recoil in shock and embarrassment for the kid. What an ass he just made of himself, and of his father, who they all knew was the mayor. In the dugout, Cleveland sat complacent on the bench as another one bit the dust. He took a tired look at the scoreboard through the haze of smoke from his Dutch master. Twelve zip. Kirkhoff, did you see the ball that time? Brian Kirkhoff said nothing as he laid down on the bench next to him, using his glove as a pillow. Hey, Snotgrass, you going to call this game or what? Curtis Cussler said. I don't call games. You kids want to embarrass yourselves and go right ahead. We're not embarrassing ourselves, Dirk Matthews said. It's just that you're not coaching us. I don't coach kids who don't have heart. You all show me you want to be here, and that's when I'll start coaching. Oh, I get it, sir, 
little Sim, Sim, Sam King said through the gaps in his teeth. You're coaching us right now to take the first step of caring. Very good, Simeon, Cleveland said. Now hand me another beer out of the icebox, will you? I apologize for that, Lionel said to the investors, feeling the eyes of the spectators upon him after his son's episode with the bat. Did I mention, Duke said, changing the subject, that my son just graduated from high school here? He was quarterback on the football team. Yeah, I used to play here on this very field back in middle school. The varsity team. Oh, nice, one of the investors said. And Lionel appreciated Duke being here, taking the pressure off him. He understood now why Duke couldn't be mayor and why Duke needed him, Lionel, to be mayor. He understood why Duke had endorsed him and told the other businesses in town to do the same. They needed each other. Duke, as the town's leading businessman, stood to profit off the decisions of City Hall and could have no conflict of interest. So he needed a man like Lionel Kirkhoff who could do his bidding and get stature while he, Duke, got money. By being here today, Duke could do the heavy lifting while Lionel received the credit. It was how the politics game worked, he figured. It wasn't the smiles or the handshakes or the volunteering, but remembering who the purse was who got you into office. Lionel relaxed a little bit on the bleachers. He had played his part in the game, and now it was time to sit back and let Duke play his. Maybe it would win Lionel another term. Maybe even, give him, maybe even get him his own statue one day, right next to Pete Purcell himself. A weird thing happened in the third inning. The Beavers, now down by 13 runs thanks to an in-the-park home run by their rival, the Vikings, managed to end their defensive round with one play when Sam, Ke Sam King in backup right field caught a pop-up fly with bases loaded. For the first time, the crowd around Mayor Lionel Kirkhoff erupted in thunderous applause and whistles. Then, now in offense, Dirk Matthews dinged a line drive that hit the fence and ended up on second and put two runs on the board after jo Job Christofferson hit a sacrifice bunt that sent Matthews to third base. And Sam King, again with this wimpy kid, hit an out-of-the-park home run. The Beavers were still down, but not out. Lionel couldn't believe what he was seeing. A sacrifice bunt? Why would they think to do that? Was that drunk Cleveland Snodgrass actually coaching them? Lionel cheered on the Beavers with the crowd, all of the crowd that was, except for Duke Gibson and the investors, who were engaged in shop talk. Lionel noticed Duke's hand extended far beyond the outfield fence. For a moment, Lionel had to drown out the noise and excitement and his heart pumping fast to listen in. Duke was saying, Way out there beyond those woods is the Veezy farm, but I'm sure we could talk to them and get it for a song. And after you got them, there ain't no reason we can't start construction on the shops and build inward. Duke scooped his hand back toward his body, like a broom clearing dust. I like it, said one investor. Sounds good, Duke, said the other. What shops are we talking about? Lionel said, shouting over the cheers. A strip mall. One investor said before Duke could, for once, interrupt. I see a wraparound complex. Big box stores all around the perimeter, restaurant islands in the parking lot. It's a perfect location, said the other investor. I'm sorry, but are you talking about here, Lionel said, in Purcell Park? Duke must have sensed the surprise and tension in Lionel's voice, for he shifted his body to make a human shield between the mayor and the investors, a political crotch block. Lionel sat in his own silence now. Duke, he thought, could be mayor all right. He knew all the angles to get what he wanted. He must have known all along. 
He hadn't brought the investors here today to show them the three C's, but the future site of a strip mall, not altogether a bad thing, he supposed. After all, they had them in Birmingham and Pell City. The people of Viscaga migrated there not just to shop and loiter, but to work and contribute their money to those municipal tax bases instead of the town they called home. It would indeed be a great thing for a project such as this in Viscaga, the kind of accomplishment every mayor had been dreaming of for years, as Duke Gibson had said. It would certainly be statue-worthy. Still, Lionel knew about those places. While they were certainly profitable, they often turned their backs on the communities that made them that way. They were corporate and decentralized, run by absentee landlords who discouraged unions. They loathed pay raises and benefits. Lionel was so caught up in the play of the moment that he barely noticed his son, Brian, who was on deck, about to step once again into the batter's box to perhaps embarrass himself and his father in front of the town. He stood up and walked down to the dugout. Quite a comeback you're working on, coach, Lionel said. Yeah, they're getting back in it, Cleveland matching another cigar and barely noticing the mayor. Why don't you do the team a favor, hon? Tell my son to take a seat. Everybody plays on my team, Kirkoff. I appreciate that, Kirch, Lionel pleaded. It's just that he's having a tough day. Maybe work with him in practice this week and play him next Saturday? Cleveland took a puff and was quiet, making like he was considering Lionel's offer. You here with those investors? Yeah? Well, then why don't you go back to them and keep selling out the town? I'm busy right now. Hey, kid! From behind the fence, Lionel saw his son, Brian, turn back to the coach. Cleveland said, When you see the ball... That's when you swing. Lionel saw Brian nod his head at the coach, and then he saw his son seeing him, Brian cracking a smile, and then turning away, making practice swings in the circle. Lionel left the duck out and went back to the bleachers, choosing now to sit on the other side of the investors, sandwiching them between him and Duke. He said, Gentlemen, I appreciate your interest in building a shopping mall here on Purcell Park, but before I can consider your offer, I think I would need to take it to the voters. It may have been the heat and that the men were in black suits, or it may have been Lionel's comment of trepidation, but pretty soon the investors were standing up and asking Duke Gibson to take them back to the truck. Lionel stayed. As the umpire screamed, batter up! He led the crowd in cheering on Brian. Swing away, son! The first pitch came in on the outside, and for the first time, Lionel saw his son reject the bait. As the Vikings catcher threw the ball back to the mound and the pitcher read signals, Lionel heard an urgent, angered voice next to him. You dummy, Duke Gibson was saying. You know how hard I'm going to have to work to get them back now? You just made the biggest mistake of your damn career. To which Mayor Lionel Kirkhoff just waved his hand and said, Shut up, Gibson. Can't you see my son's at bat? Coffee's cold. <laughs> Ugh, Jesus. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, that has been your Midnight Citizen Show. Thank you for joining me. It's actually after midnight here in Birmingham. Yeah, that uh, Tales from Viscaga 
Alabama put us over the mark. So I hope you enjoyed it. Again, catch me on the Overnight Scape Underground, onsug.com. You can download it on your uh, podcast app of choice. I'm also at Mike Booty on YouTube. Those are the only places I am right now. Also on Facebook. I got a Facebook page for the Midnight Citizens. You, you can go on there, and that's where I posted uh, the link to tonight's live show. I don't know if we have anybody who's still here. <laughs> Let's see. I don't know. That uh, story may have uh, drowned them out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we got a couple people still watching. Okay, that's good. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. If you want to email me anything at all, mikebooty at gmail.com. Other than that, I will see you next week on the show. Yeah, I think I'm going to start doing the show again throughout the summer at least. Until then, keep your eyes open. Mm-hmm.